It didn't take long at all. When the public first learned about the institution of the Society of the Cincinnati by officers of the Continental Army on the Hudson River on May 13, 1783, critics of the idea, and they could be found from New England to South Carolina, even among American diplomats in Europe, began to engage in the first explicit discussions of the rights of US citizens to form private societies and of the potential dangers that the closed institution of, by, and for the elite might pose for the infant American Republic. It's not hard to imagine their concerns. The society of the Cincinnati was this. French and American officers of the revolution who had at least three years of service could join what could easily be seen and was often mistaken for a self-created knighthood. Members would wear an elaborate medal. Membership would descend from them to their eldest sons into perpetuity. It was utterly unrepublican. John Adams, writing from Europe, called it a deep design to overturn the whole edifice of our republican liberty. Its most vociferous critic, Judge Adonis Burke of South Carolina said that to permit the Cincinnati's existence would give a fatal wound to civil liberty through the world. Two of the charges aimed at the Cincinnati were in the context of America's powerful revolutionary republicanism, especially brutal. One, the hereditary aspect of membership led some to believe that the club might result in the creation of an American peerage, even if the organizers had no such intention. As a convention of concerned citizens in Rhode Island noted in 1784 in April, the Cincinnati were, quote, endeavoring to create themselves and their male heirs, patricians or noblemen, which institution is of a most dangerous nature, incompatible with a Republican government and tending to a dissolution thereof. It was a deeply felt anxiety, one heard north and south. Second, in a period when hardly any organization except for the Confederation Congress was truly national in scope, People could see the Cincinnati with its federal structure. It had a national, state level, and in some places, district level meetings as nothing less than a self-created and parallel government. Two of the nation's most influential individuals in 1784, George Washington and the author of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, conversed, debated, and discussed this issue at great length. And what they had to say about this first national controversy in the years after the Treaty of Paris is really revealing about some of their core beliefs about government, about social order and social harmony, and strangely enough, about whether friendship might fit into the new American Republic. The French Revolution was about liberty, equality, and fraternity. Was fraternity really a core component of American republicanism? And in a way that mirrored the important distinction drawn by revolutionary writers between society and government, one was natural, the other artificial. One, as Thomas Paine said, was produced by our wants, the other government was produced by our wickedness. So too were critics of the Cincinnati, like Thomas Jefferson, profoundly skeptical of the society of the Cincinnati's claim to be founded in mutual friendships, which had been forged in the pressure of common danger in a time of war. He acknowledged that the society of the Cincinnati was nothing more than an attempt by Continental Army officers to create a society of friends where they could gather and periodically reminisce about the revolution. And yet, Men such as Jefferson, who was not a member, and George Washington, who was, gave serious thought to the idea that the very act of creating the Society of the Cincinnati might threaten that goal. Nothing corrupted friendship, they believed, like formal association. Jefferson put his finger directly on the issue in a letter that he wrote to Washington in April 1784. 
Friendship was a feature of natural society and formalities and organized collective action, such as this society with its medals and its meetings, were elements of political society. As this distinction between friendship and formal association became hardened in the crucible of the first post-war national controversy, the result was a growing certainty in the early American Republic that natural bonds of affection were really sufficiently distinct from artificial bonds of any contractually organized society, from a club to the nation as a whole, that they should and would need to be governed by entirely different rules of conduct. The debate over the Cincinnati was also a debate about how the new nation might hold itself together. So the Society of the Cincinnati was this. It was, it was named for the Roman general Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus, who rather than seeking power and glory, had returned to his farm after military triumph. The framers of the Cincinnati, led by General Henry Knox, whose brainchild it was, conceived of it as a, quote, society of friends to endure so long as they shall endure or any of their eldest male posterity. By signing a copy of the Parchment Institution, which is what they called their constitution of the Cincinnati, more than 1,000 Revolutionary War officers had joined within months of its formation in May 1783. From the moment that the first eyebrow was raised concerning this veterans organization, defenders of the Cincinnati insisted, and most scholars agree that there's little reason to doubt them, that this organization was nothing more than the product of heartfelt desires to preserve the friendships forged in a long and bloody war. According to one Maryland member, the war produced friendships that were, quote, strengthened by adversity and finally cemented, as our establishment expresses, by the blood of the parties. These were generally of, he said, too endearing a nature to be forever dissolved by the separation which necessarily followed the discharge of the army. And because no mode so unexceptionable as this could be devised to render them lasting, the Society of the Cincinnati was formed. When the controversy exploded about this potentially dangerous society, George Washington, who had the, the presidency of the society thrust upon him, felt obliged to seek the advice of others about how he ought to respond. The advice that most influenced him came from Thomas Jefferson, who was then serving in the Congress in Annapolis. In a letter that he sent to Washington on April 16, 1784, fully expecting that the two men would later sit down and talk about it in person, Jefferson laid out his case for why the retired commander-in-chief should do everything in his considerable power to destroy the Cincinnati. He hit the anti-aristocratic note first in his letter to Washington. He said the society, in granting the progeny of its members preeminence by birth, was, and this is a great Jeffersonian line, against the letter of some of our constitutions, against the spirit of them all. The Cincinnati, he argued, might well be a first step toward the subversion of all the revolution's many accomplishments, accomplishments that Jefferson believed had the potential to alter the world. The stakes were tremendous. He also told Washington that if the society of the Cincinnati was created in order to preserve the friendships forged in war, that it was, in fact, a bad idea, that it, the society was ill-served by the creation of a badge-wearing, meeting-holding, bylaw-adopting club, that, in fact, the manner of organization chosen by the Society of Cincinnati would probably destroy the friendships forged in war, not foster them. I doubt, he wrote, whether in its execution it would be found to answer the wishes of those who framed it and to foster those friendships it was intended to preserve. The members of the Cincinnati, Jefferson said, would attend their annual assemblies no longer to encounter a common enemy, but to encounter one another in debate and sentiment. He somewhat snidely, I think, told Washington that the Cincinnati probably won't have much to do at their meetings, but I suppose something is to be done. And however unimportant, it will suffice to produce differences of opinion, contradiction, and irritation. 
and nothing, and, and this is a, a line in Jefferson's letter that Washington would quote directly when he first spoke in front of the Society of the Cincinnati, nothing loosens the bands of private friendship more than for friends to pit themselves against each other in public debate. This was not a position that Jefferson took up for this one argument, but it was one deeply grounded in his political philosophy. He believed that the natural sociability of man was something to be sheltered, something not to be subjected to man-made pressures of organized disputation. He would later observe that an association of men who will not quarrel is a thing which never yet existed, from the greatest confederacy of nations down to a town meeting or vestry. It was something, too, that Jefferson saw evidenced in American Indian societies, where a natural social impulse without government, as he wrote to James Madison, brought together people to form collectives that were happy and equitable. This distinction between natural society and the artifices of government was shared widely by members of the revolutionary generation. Thomas Paine had begun common sense with much the same sentiment. Jefferson's letter hit its mark. Washington visited Jefferson in, in Annapolis, Maryland, not long after he received it. And as Jefferson recalled, we had much conversation on the institution until Washington declared his determination to use his utmost endeavor to have it entirely abolished. After leaving Jefferson, Washington traveled to Philadelphia, presided over the first general meeting of the Cincinnati in 1784, where he would make his opinion known at the first opportunity. He used Jefferson's line that nothing loosens the bands of private friendship more than for friends to pit themselves against each other in public debate in his first speech in front of the society. As Washington then paraphrased in his own words, this creation, the society of the Cincinnati, might be more productive of dissension than harmony. He proved the point as much by, by his behavior as he did by his words, because he was apparently genuinely upset. He gave two long speeches on back-to-back -back days, and an observer there noted that he spoke with much warmth and agitation. And these are hardly adjectives that we generally associate with the more calm and collected George Washington. He pushed very hard to eliminate the hereditary membership clause in the society, if they don't eliminate the society altogether, and to certainly get rid of any national meetings. This idea that we needed to gather as, uh, into one national central meeting each year, uh, each, every three years actually, uh, as the society uh, originally formulated it, uh, seemed to Washington to serve no good purpose and to raise the worries of citizens around the country. So what happened? Washington demands that this uh, society be destroyed, or at least so revamped that it eliminates uh, much of what was originally a part of the uh, uh, organization of the Society of the Cincinnati. Well, those who opposed Washington's position on this, who wanted their membership to pass down to their eldest son so that their service in war could be remembered for generations after, they emphasized that they had agreed to join the Society of the Cincinnati on those terms, and it shouldn't be changed. That is, they emphasized the contractual ideas of association. New Hampshire's John Sullivan, a general in the Continental Army, pointedly told Washington that we became members of the Cincinnati upon the original plan and cannot conceive ourselves bound by articles to which we never subscribed should they happen to revamp the Society of the Cincinnati. And these men stuck to their original plans long enough for most of the critics of the Cincinnati to drift off to other worries, long enough for most observers to see that the Cincinnati really were fairly innocuous. The defenders of the Cincinnati then won the battle. Hereditary membership in most states, it was a decision made at a state by state level, uh, was preserved. But they lost the war. Uh, attrition and apathy tended to kill the Cincinnati uh, rather than their, in, than their enemies where some 2,000 revolutionary officers joined 
in the months and uh, about a year after the end of the Revolutionary War. A few decades later, they had hundreds of members, uh, not thousands. And in 1830, they had only 250 members total. And it certainly became clear over time in the 1790s and in the first decades in the 19th century that the Society of the Cincinnati was not a club of some 2,000 friends. The contention of politics would drive the point home. Luke and Elijah Day joined Shays' Rebellion in 1786 and were unceremoniously booted out of the Cincinnati in Massachusetts, who then rewrote their membership history by resolving that they are not and never have been considered as members of the society. More tellingly, about a week before Aaron Burr shot Alexander Hamilton to death in 1804, the two men had dinner together as fellow members of the annual gathering of the Society of the Cincinnati in New York on July 4th, 1804. Friends indeed. Only later in the 19th century, with the rise of so many other fraternal clubs, uh, the Odd Fellows, for instance, and the growing numbers of veterans organizations, most importantly, the Grand Army of the Republic, a veterans organization of national scope for Civil War veterans, did the Society of the Cincinnati revive and grow, and it still exists today. But the exchange between Jefferson and Washington, as well as the broader debate over the Society of the Cincinnati, was revealing of some important principles that were resonant from New England to South Carolina in the immediate wake of the American Revolution. And we overstate their worries about hereditary membership somewhat uh, because this wasn't just a concern that this might create an aristocracy in the, in the uh, new United States. There were other concerns too about the potential of private abuses of power and also an interesting discussion as we see in the conversation between Jefferson and Washington about whether the Society of the Cincinnati was even a good idea from the perspective of the members themselves. Should we really form such an artificial, badge-wearing, meeting-holding club if we want to maintain our friendships forged in war? And I think what this reveals is an attitude about friendship and fraternity that's uniquely American, that in fact our nation is going to be held together by agreements, by compacts. We, not long after, we agreed that the president would take an oath of office to uphold the Constitution not to support the American people in some sort of abstract sense, but to uphold an agreement that the American people had, had created themselves. I think we see a distinction between formal association, which seems to be the proper domain and restrictions upon our government, and less formal associations of friendship and family, which are, from the perspective of, of the revolutionary and post-revolutionary generations, quite different things. Society and government were indeed produced by different desires and different needs. And the debate over the society of the Cincinnati really drives that point home. Thank you. Freedom 101 is made possible by generous support from the University of Oklahoma Alumni Association. Freedom 101 is a program of the Institute for the American Constitutional Heritage at the University of Oklahoma. For more videos and podcasts, visit freedom.ou.edu.